Would you take your Bibles this evening and turn to Judges chapter 16 with me? Judges chapter 16. Sometimes we have periods in our lives where we think that everything is going to be okay because, hey, everything has always been okay. And then something tragic happens. Maybe our sin caused some great conflict or we lost a loved one. Some catastrophic event happened at work that changed our way of living. And I think sometimes we tend to look at life like Samson looked at life. He felt like the strength that he enjoyed was all because he just did things the way he always did them. For us, we sometimes look at the Christian life like a magic formula. You know, as long as I keep doing the same things I've been doing, so kind of input these little parts to the formula, and the 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 uh, the result is going to be that I'm going to have a good life. As long as I keep doing these things, I'm going to f- be fine. Or when things aren't going my way, then maybe I change the formula a little bit over here, so let me just manipulate it, change it back to what it should have been, and now my life's going to be good again. But I think when we do that, it, it takes away from heartfelt service. It turns our acts of service into heartless acts and to wrongly motivated, wrongly motivated acts of service. Listen to this chorus from a song that we often sing. O Lord, set a fire in my soul and a thirst for my God. Be Thou my prayer, Lord, Thy power impart, not just to serve, but what? But to love Thee with all of my heart. It's not really enough just to, to, to uh, robotically follow all of these uh, commands, but it is that we must have a heart that's behind our service. And that's something that we need to be empowered by God to do. It's something that we ought to pray often for. But sometimes what happens in the Christian life is that we enjoy the blessings of God on a continual basis, and then we stop acknowledging where those blessings come from. We stop acknowledging the source of those blessings. We move to a position, I would say, of complacency, where we think the reason that we're getting these blessings is because of something that I have done rather than I'm getting these blessings because of God's mercy, God's grace. We think, you know, maybe God, and we wouldn't say it this way, but maybe God isn't the giver of all good gifts. Maybe the gifts are inherent in me because, hey, I am me. I am I, if we want to be grammatically correct there. Samson was no longer convinced that his strength came from God, and so he felt like he could do whatever he wanted effectively. And we're going to see that very clearly today, that this was not just something that sprung on him, the fact that his hair was cut, and then he loses his strength. I think he really believed that he had disobeyed God before in several of the other areas of the Nazarite vow, and God hadn't done anything to his strength. So maybe the strength was not from God after all. So we need to see this evening that we can't take God's presence and blessing for granted. We can't take God's presence and blessings for granted. Let's read this chapter. Uh, actually, we'll just read the first 14 verses to start with, and then we'll we'll take a look at it together. Judges chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. 
Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And it was when it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then, it, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. And then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain which is opposite Hebron. After this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistine came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of a uh, of a tote snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please, tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes, which have not been used, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room, but he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. The proud take the blessings of God for granted. And so we as believers ought to, uh, we can't take the blessings of God for granted. We can't take the presence of God for granted. I think uh, Samson here has come to a point in his life where he has become very proud, very self-centered, self-absorbed. We've, we've um, documented this as we've gone through the study of his life and have seen that he has lived a life of vengeance, one that's all about his own personal vengeance. And there's great danger in taking God's blessings for granted. There's great danger. We see this in verses 1 through 21. In verses 1 through 3, the Philistines make an attempt on Samson's life. Notice the depravity of Samson in verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Samson is so bold, so brash with his sin that he's willing to even go to enemy territory and sleep with the prostitute. Notice the confidence that he has here, that he's willing to go. Where where does he go? Verse 1. To Gaza. Gaza, if you remember, is one of the five Philistine cities. And Gaza apparently was the capital city of Philistia. 
And so he goes directly to the capital city inside their territory and puts himself in a vulnerable position. When the Philistines learn of this, they wait to kill him. In verse 2. They were probably ready to attack him when he was most vulnerable. That's why they were going to wait until morning. They had been burned by him once before, or many times before. His strength was too too powerful for them. And so they wait till the morning when, you know, you're groggy and you haven't had your coffee yet. This is when they were going to get Samson. Apparently Samson was aware of this this um, this plot against his life, or at least against his capture. And so he plans a counter-defense in verse 3. It says that Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. He gets up at midnight and takes the gate, its post, and the bar, the crossbar that, that would keep the gate closed. And he puts them on his shoulders and carries them to Hebron. Now let's think for a minute so that we consider what he has just done. The gates in those days were designed for what purpose? Decoration? Yeah, security. It was supposed to protect from the enemies who were trying to get into the city walls. These gates would have been, based on some similar excavations in other cities nearby, would have been about 10 feet high, and they would have needed to be wide enough to allow war horses to come into the city and and to stable there, perhaps so that the war horses could come in side by side. So these gates were probably 10 to 12 feet wide and 10 feet high. The purpose of the gate, as has been mentioned, was to keep the enemies out, and so it would do no good to have a little piece of 3 8 inch plywood or something to, to keep people out. They would just tear it apart very easily. So these gates would have been pretty thick, probably one to three feet wide. And the other thing that they had to protect against was was being set on fire. Because if you have some nice stone walls all around the city, it does you no good if you have a wooden gate. These gates would have been made of wood, but they usually were covered with bronze, which would have doubled the weight. The posts were usually made of iron, or wood, and they were buried deep into the ground in order to provide stability for the gates so that they would have some, some strength. The total weight of the city gates and the two posts, along with the bars, the crossbars that would have been attached to it, would have been, based on estimations by uh, scientists, 3 to 10 tons. 3 to 10 tons. Now, the fact that Samson was able to take those things out with his bare hands is impressive, but notice what he does with them at the end of verse 2. He put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now, this place opposite Hebron was about 35 miles away, and it was at the top of mountain. So he was going uphill for about 35 miles with anywhere from 3 to 10 tons of weight on his shoulders. One scientist calculated that it would take about 28.5 horsepower to carry a 3-ton object for 35 miles, but that's just on level ground. The fact that he was going uphill to get to the top of the mountain suggests what great power he has 
put that in perspective, the current world record of lifting a barbell from the ground to over a person's head is 472 pounds. It's not even close to what Samson is doing here. A Ford F-150 can pull about five and a half tons. I can't imagine the stories that Samson could have told if he had grandchildren at some point. You know, when I was your age, I lifted up the city gates and I took them uphill the whole way there. Right? It's not clear why Samson took the gates up to the top of the hill. Maybe he knew that these Philistines, even with all of their strength, would not be able to bring them back down. So maybe it was just out of spite. But I think it's probably more likely that this place opposite Hebron, Hebron was the chief city of Judah. And he's probably making a statement to the people of Judah. When Judah looked up to that hill and saw those gates, maybe he he buried them back in the ground, set them up as if it was a monument of his strength. And so he was making a statement, I think, both to the Philistines and to Judah, saying, Judah, you should have trusted in me. Remember what happened when, when Samson was hiding in the cave or just kind of moping there? And then the Philistines started putting pressure on Judah. Judah, I said last week, could have they could have used Samson. They could have said, we're coming after you, the Philistines. We have Samson on our side. Instead, they say, Samson, we're giving you over to them. So maybe Samson's saying, so you think the Philistines are really a threat, huh? Look what I just did. Whatever the reason, the main point that we ought to draw from this is that God has empowered him in a supernatural way. This is unprecedented in human history. And so they try, they, they at least make a plot against his life, but Samson foils the plot. In verses 4-17, through 17, the Philistines make another attempt on Samson's life. This time they do it through a woman named Delilah. This next episode is happening because Samson, again, is at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong motives. He has already spent the night with a prostitute in the city. In verse 1, here he meets another woman, and her name is Delilah. Someone who, is, who was a part of a foreign nation. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with a person marrying someone from a foreign nation, but for a Jew it was. Because the problem with that is that they would eventually be turned away to the gods of, of that, um, that foreign nation that they would follow. And so God said explicitly in Deuteronomy, do not marry a foreign wife. Do not marry a foreign husband. God knew that, that a woman like this would turn Samson's heart away from God. Notice the goal of the Philistines at the end of verse 5. Entice him, they say, to Delilah and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him. What's their, what's their purpose in all this? So that we may bind him to afflict him. So find out where his strength lies because we want to bind him and afflict him. What they don't say is, tell us where his strength lies so that we can kill him. They want to torture him. And we know that that's what they want to do because when they finally do capture him, what do they do? They tie him up and pluck his eyes out and make him a common laborer. They want to torture him for all the things that he has done to them. Now certainly there's been lots of give and take on both sides, but but they're ready to, to, um, to bring out vengeance on Samson. And notice the incentive that they give in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, then we will each give you... So this is the lords of the Philistines. There are five Philistine cities. There's apparently a ruler, a lord over each city. 
And each of these men are saying, we will each give you 1,100 pieces or shekels of silver. 1,100 shekels of silver. So 5,500 shekels of silver in order for us to caption uh, to capture enemy number one for our nation. Now just to put that in perspective, Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. Abraham bought that plot of land, remember, where he would bury Sarah and eventually be buried himself. He bought that for 400 shekels of silver. Samaria was purchased for 6,000 shekels of silver. So Samaria, the whole city of Samaria, Samaria the capital of Israel, was sold for 6,000 shekels of silver, and they're offering her 5,500 shekels of silver. That would be about 150 pounds of silver uh, eat from each ruler. 900 pounds of silver in total in our day would be about $200,000. If she could get him to reveal his secret, the secret of his strength. So she makes several attempts to do this. We read about the first one in verse 7. In verses 6 through 9, would you please tell me where your strength lies so that they can overpower you and afflict you? She doesn't even try to hide what she's doing there. And so he says, yes, just use seven fresh cords. Now these, uh, in verse 7, could be seven fresh leather strips or seven fresh tendons. It's not clear exactly what these are, but some kind of restraints. And, of course, they put them on him, and they have some people. She has some people hiding in the inner room, and... She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he breaks out of the restraints and likely kills the Philistines that were trying to capture him, although the text doesn't say. The second attempt is found in verses 10 through 12. And he says, this time you need to put on new ropes, new ropes that have never been used. Now, uh, they should have known that he, he could break the restraints if he were put into new ropes because you remember what, the, what Judah put on him in chapter 13? It was new ropes. They put on brand new ropes. They took them captive to the Philistines there who were ready to fight. They have this huge battle cry, and then Samson breaks these ropes with his strength, grabs the jawbone of a donkey, and kills a thousand of them. So to break a new rope is no small feat in itself, much like the gates, uh, carrying the, the gates to the, the top of the hill, top of the mountain, uh, a standard rope, uh, like a climbing rope that you would see in a gym, is rated at 6,000 pounds. So in order to break a rope like that, you'd either have to weigh that much, you have to have something to weigh that much to break it, or you would have to have that much force. So that's what kind of force, that's what kind of superhuman strength he had in order to break these, and he does in verses 11 and 12. And then the third attempt we read about as well, in verse verses 13 and 14, he says, Weave the, lo- the seven locks of my hair into a web and then set it with a pin so that it's somehow mangled in some way. I'm not exactly sure what, what's going on. Scholars are unclear about what this means precisely. But now he's starting to get closer to the real secret. And we know that he's going to reveal that it is something to do with his hair. But here he says, Weave them into seven locks. Of course, when he wakes up, he pulls the pin out of his hair and apparently straightens it out in some way and then attacks them, counterattacks them. All right, attempt number four is found in verses 15 to 17, so let's read those, verses 15 to 17. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? 
You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Delilah presses him, much like his wife, his Philistine wife had done in chapter 14. She kept pressing him when when he was at this wedding feast, and he gives this riddle to the the 30 companions, and, and they have this wager that they can't... Samson says, you can't figure it out, and if you do, I'll give you 30 garments. It'll be brand new garments that you can keep. Samson didn't learn that she pressed him to the point where he would finally give up his secret. Delilah did the same thing. And he reveals his secret in verse 17. Up until this point, he had touched plenty of dead bodies. He touched a, a dead lion twice. Once after he killed it, once when he got the honey from it. He, he killed 30 Philistines to get their clothes. In order to get their clothes, he would have had to touch dead bodies. He touched the jawbone of a donkey. All these things were unclean things that he was not supposed to touch. Up until this point, he had also apparently drunk wine. Remember in chapter 14, he was hanging out in the vineyards. And then also he has this wedding feast. And, and with the feasts of the ancient Near East, there would have been wine. And so he likely would have broken that part of the Nazarite vow. But, but up until this point, he still hadn't violated the third prohibition of the Nazarite vow, which was do not shave your head. Do not put a razor to your hair. Until now, he reveals his secret. And although he doesn't cut his hair himself, he gives away the secret so that it can be cut. And in verses 18-20, through 20, he is neutralized for the first time in his life. Verse 18 reads, When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up at once, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. And then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. Now, Samson has done some pretty foolish things in his life, but this probably ranks right at the top. He gives Delilah the secret of his strength. And then notice what he allows her to do in verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees. Even though Samson gives away his secret, he had to know since every time he apparently gave away the secret before, she always tried that on him. So now he gives away the secret and she fall, he falls asleep on her knees so that he had to know that she was going to shave his head. And yet he still puts himself in this vulnerable position because I think that he thought that just like before, his strength would remain. Just as he had disobeyed the Nazarite vow before, and nothing happened. His strength remained. He was still able to slaughter these Philistines, still able to slaughter these animals. 
so it's going to happen again. My strength will remain. And so he was unconcerned about it. And the reason I say that that he is he thinks that he's going to be the same as he was before is because of verse 20. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. Now, did he wake up and somehow not know that his head wasn't shaved? Ladies, if you had long hair your entire life and then had your head shaved, do you think you'd notice that when you woke up in the morning? Would it feel any differently when you moved around? Right? I was going to say the same for the guys, but some of us, we, we can't notice a difference because we're, we're thinning pretty badly. Um, I think Samson knew exactly what was going on, and yet he says, I will go out as before, and I'll, I'll shake myself free. I'm going, to, I'm going to conquer these people as before because the strength is within me. Why would it change now? Something was drastically different, wasn't it? Something was drastically different. And we find that drastic difference at the end of verse 20. What was it? He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Samson had no idea that the strength and the source of that strength was gone. And I think when the text says the Lord departed from him, I think the idea is the Spirit of the Lord that you remember in previous passages, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him even in the womb. Right? He was set apart for God's purposes from the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord was, was providing for him military and administrative tasks, uh, abilities that he could accomplish as the theocratic ruler. We've talked about this many times before. That when the Spirit of the Lord came upon these Old Testament rulers, it was because they were the theocratic ruler, the God-anointed ruler, and that would happen to various people, believers and unbelievers, until the time of Christ. He would be the final who would have the Spirit of the Lord come upon him in that way. And uh, that happened at his baptism. It wasn't that Christ was getting saved, right? It was that that God was showing that, that you have the administrative ability. You are now the Davidic king. You are now the, the God-appointed ruler. Obviously, before David would have just been a God-appointed ruler. And I say believers and unbelievers because we know King Saul had the Spirit of the Lord come upon him, right? When he became king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, it says that the Spirit departed from Saul and went to David. So does that mean that King Saul lost his salvation? No. right? That's not talking about salvation there. That's talking about the theocratic anointing that was to come on the ruler of Israel. And so it left Saul and went to David. David, remember in Psalm 51, prayed, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What was he praying there? That he wouldn't lose his salvation? That somehow that, that God would just keep him saved? No, he's saying, Don't take your theocratic anointing from me because of such a, a, a terrible sin that I've committed. Right? And so that's what the theocratic anointing is. And here, this is a symbol of God removing His, His grace from Samson. That theocratic anointing that was on this God-appointed ruler to, to deliver Israel from the Philistines has now been removed as he gets his hair shaved. Samson didn't know 
that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. It's one of the most terrible phrases in all the Old Testament. There are a few others that come to mind, like in Genesis 3 when the text says, And she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her. Or in Genesis 6, God looked down from heaven and saw that man's intentions were only evil all the time. Pretty devastating statements there. 1 Samuel 4, after the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, Eli, remember, heard the news and he fell back backward, apparently hit his head on a rock and, and died. Shortly after that, Phinehas' wife gave birth to a son and do you remember what she named him? His name was Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. That is, the Ark of the Covenant has gone. God's special presence is gone from the people of Israel. That glory departing from the temple is also seen in Ezekiel chapter 10. And one other devastating phrase that comes in the Old Testament that came to mind as I was was thinking about this is Amos chapter 8 verse 11. When God prophesies through the prophet Amos that there will not be a famine, not that there will be a famine, but not a famine of the land. It will be a famine of hearing my words. That you're at a place where you don't want to hear me. So now there's going to be a famine of hearing me. There's going to be a thirst for me, like there, because there is no word from me. And this phrase ranks right up there. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Well, the result, of course, in verse 21 is that he is captured. It's amazing to think what has come from this former champion, Samson. He goes from a great champion to a day laborer, and really an object of mockery and derision. Look at the end of verse 21. And they bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. It's probably uh, grinding corn or wheat or something just on a, on a mill somewhere, and he's just kind of pushing around in the circle like an animal would do. This is Samson's job, and, and I'm sure the Philistines took great pleasure out of watching him do this. So, the proud take the blessings of God for granted. There's great danger in taking God's blessings for granted. And when God removes His blessings for a time, we are reminded to turn back to Him. That's what verses 22-31 through 31 are about. When God removes, removes His blessing for a time, we are reminded to turn back to Him. In verses 22-27, to 27, Samson is humiliate, humiliated. Uh, in front of the, the Philistines, verse 22, however, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Here's a quick note by the author to show us the foolishness of the Philistines. They thought that there was some kind of magical thing with his hair, that he was weak because he, he had no hair and, and they didn't recognize that his hair was actually regrowing, that once we remove his strength, the strength will never come back. Now, keep in mind that that his hair was not the source of the strength. So we, we, rec- we have this comment in here. The hair does grow back, and it seems like the strength comes back as well because we're going to see what he uses it for in just a second. But So maybe the source of the strength is in the hair, but that's not it. That's the symbol of the source of the strength, the symbol of the strength. The, the actual source of the strength is the presence of God. God is the one who gives them the supernatural ability to have this great power. And God is the one who leaves him. 
when he has his head shaved. But the Philistines just thought that he would be, now that we've removed his strength from him, he will never have his strength returned to him again. But that was actually all up to God. Well, in verse 23, the Philistines gather at the temple of Dagon. We read, Now the lords of the Philistines, these rulers of the five cities, assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Now, you've heard that that name before, Dagon, this false god of the Philistines. Uh, perhaps you remember from Second Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant is captured and it's kept in the same room as Dagon, this false god. What happens to Dagon in the morning? Right, he falls down flat, and then the next morning he has his hands and legs broken off or something like that. And uh, shows the power of God that this is... Uh, God should not be put on the same level as false gods. And uh, so these Philistines were worshiping Dagon at this time, even prior to that event I just described. The Philistines are at the temple of Dagon, and they want to celebrate this great victory that they have over Samson. And so the lords of the Philistines set it up. And um, God is doing something bigger than Samson here. Samson definitely has a responsibility to take his relationship with God very seriously, but God's doing something bigger than Samson. This is not really about Samson. This is about God. And who is stronger, God or this false god, Dagon? So they have all these Philistines who think that they have won, that they have won against God's people. See, God is, is doing something much larger than Samson, just like He's doing something much larger than you and me. And that is that He is working to break the ties of Israel from the Philistines so that they do not serve the false gods that the Philistines have. And so Samson is humiliated in verses 24-27 through 27 because they use him as, a, as their means of entertainment, amusement. Verse 24, when the people saw him, they praised their God and they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands. And the implied statement there is, Our God's stronger than your God, effectively. Even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. Verse 25, It so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Samson is humiliated. They use him as an object of mockery. But then in verses 28-31, through I said when God removes his blessing from us for a time, it causes us to turn back to Him. And that's what happens for Samson in verses 28-31. to 31. He prays here. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Now this prayer, again, seems to be self-centered, just like the prayer when he was dying of thirst. You know, you are the God who delivered me from the Philistines, but give me some water. I'm really thirsty. It seems to be very self-centered. But keep in mind that Samson is asking to kill the Philistines. And many of these people are people with whom he's made close relationships. Remember, he, he was married to one of them, 
obviously she and her father are dead, and maybe the rest of her family. Um, he spends the night with a, a Philistine prostitute, and he has a relationship with Delilah as well. And so Samson's killing the very people with whom he's had the closest relationship other than his parents in his entire life. So I think this is actually an act of, in some ways, an act of faith. That he's starting to recognize now, for perhaps the first time in his life, that God is the source of his strength. So he turns to God, and while we could take his prayer and say that it's all self-centered, he says at the end of the verse, that I may be avenged. It's all about me. It's not about you being avenged, God, that you, your name being cleared, your reputation being upheld seems to me that he's starting to recognize, although it's maybe a weak faith, it seems like there is some faith there. He grabs the two middle pillars that were supporting the weight of the roof in verse 29. Samson grasped the two middle pillar, pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand, the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. And then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. These two middle pillars that supported the roof. Remember on top of the roof, verse 27, there were 3,000 men and women looking over the top enjoying this great sight, watching this weak man uh, with his eyes gouged out hanging there or, or just standing there. These pillars would have been made of wood and placed on stone bases. The text tell, tells us that, that the roof does fall, but it doesn't tell us that all 3,000 on the roof died, nor does it tell us that everybody in the temple died, but it does tell us that he killed more people in his death than he did in his life. Uh, we know that he killed at least a thousand Philistines, probably closer to fifteen hundred uh, in total in his life, and yet in his death he kills more with this one act. Now, people ask me occasionally whether a believer can commit suicide, and some people want me to say no, and others yes. I often respond with the story of Samson, because what it tells us is that it is actually possible that a person can commit suicide to the glory of God. Now, some people say, well, this is just an act of sacrifice. This is more sacrifice than a suicide. Uh, but I think he willfully knew. He willfully accomplished what he knew was going to happen, that he was going to die. Now, I always qualify that statement when people ask me about that with, however, most of the time when a person kills himself, He's doing it to eliminate pain, and he's not really concerned about glorifying God in his death. So, the point is, we can't know for sure. Some people like to say, well, no way that a person could commit suicide and be a believer. But here's an example in Scripture. One of the four people, four or five people, I think, in all of Scripture that did commit suicide, and yet, he seems to do it to the glory of God. And we know that because of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, that commends him for his faith. And this seems to be his greatest act of faith in his entire life. Because really, apart from Hebrews 11, we would look at his life and say, with all of the, the evil things that he has done, 
and with how he ended his life, there is no possible way he could be a believer. If it were not for Hebrews 11.32, we might think that. There's a final summary in verse 31. And he judged Israel for 20 years. Similar summary that we saw at the end of chapter 15. Let me leave you with several points of application this evening. Number one, watch out for the danger of success. Watch out for the danger of success. We often think that the best thing that could possibly happen to us in this life is that we become more successful. More successful in our job. More successful in our interpersonal relationships. More successful in our popularity. More successful with our finances. But I would suggest to you that you need to watch out. Beware of the danger of success. Because it can be the very thing that moves us toward the path of ungodliness. And please don't hear me say that, that financial success is somehow evil. That you can't do anything good with your money. But I would suggest to you that, that a God-excluded pursuit of success is actually one of the worst things that could happen to us. Gideon was a man who had it all. I'm sorry, Samson was a man who had it all. He was undefeated in battle. He was, he was crafty. He could get practically any woman he wanted. He was, in his own eyes and in the eyes of most people that, that we read, when we read his story, he was a great success. He's a great champion. But think with me about Romans 1 for a minute. In Romans 1, we read about the depravity of humanity and that they desire things that they ought not to desire. and They pursue their own lusts. That's what they really want in life. They want to pursue their own lusts unrestrained. So for them, success would be following through on their passions, being able to follow through on those ungodly lusts. You know what the Bible says in Romans 1? God gives them over to the passions, to their own passions and their selfish desires. In other words, in a form of judgment, God gives these wicked unbelievers success. Exactly what they want. When he does that, he shows his worth. That because they have rejected him, they are pursuing something that does not satisfy. And God's allowing them to see that it actually does not satisfy. And they may die pursuing that sort of lust. And they will die recognizing that it never did satisfy. And that the ultimate result of it was a waste. So beware of the danger of God-excluded pursuit of success. Number two, sometimes God humbles us so that we see where our power lies. Sometimes God humbles us, or maybe I could say God often humbles us so that we can see where our power lies. John Whitcomb says, Samson defeated the strongest of men but was defeated by the weakest of women. Sometimes as we coast through the Christian life, and subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, take the glory for the things that we have done, then we forget the purpose behind what we're supposed to be doing. And it's at that time where we may just want to be left alone, but here's what God does in His love. He comes down and He humbles us 
He graciously comes along and causes us to fail. And sometimes fail badly so that we can see what great things that He can can accomplish even in our weakness. Has that ever happened to you? Has God ever allowed you to fail so that He could draw you closer to Him? Thank God for that. Thank God for the times when He reveals your sin. Thank God for the times when He slows you down through weakness and trial so that you will, will not boast in all of those things. You will boast only in the relationship that you have with Christ and that you'll remember where your power lies. Sometimes God humbles us so that we see where our, our power lies. Number three, don't coast through your spiritual life while ignoring sin. Don't coast through your spiritual life while ignoring your sin. Be sure that your sins will find you out. Don't be deceived into thinking that, you know, turning away from God could never happen to me. Because if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Don't coast through your spiritual life while ignoring your sin. Instead, work hard at self-discipline. If you don't work hard at self-discipline, you will live a miserable life. And you will bring great harm on yourself, great consequences on yourself and others. Samson brought about because of his sin, because he went through his life ignoring his sin. He brought about the death of his family, that is his wife and her family, and he brought about his own death because he went on through life ignoring his sin. Do you think Satan is sitting back unconcerned about you because, hey, you made a profession of faith. I guess they made a profession of faith. I'm not going to touch them. Too late to do anything there. No, I think he is using all of his energy all of his resources to derail Christians around the globe, including you and me. And the best thing that we can do is to step into the light and to acknowledge our sin before the Holy God and recognize the great disaster that it's going to bring if we continue to pursue it. Number four. The Bible portrays life as it is. The Bible portrays life as it is. In other words, the Bible doesn't allow us to ignore the evils of the world and even the evils that we see in the best of leaders like a Samson. Aren't you thankful for that? That the Bible just says it like it is. That God not only, as we've been seeing, that God not only uses flawed people, but He doesn't hide the fact that He uses flawed people. He doesn't hide their flaws. He doesn't just kind of... You know, if, if we wrote a history of the people of Israel, our history would be much different than God's. We would probably leave out some of those details about the sins, like Abraham we just read about tonight in Genesis chapter 20, where he he lies about his wife and basically prostitutes her out to these men who want to have relations with her. I mean, we, we might keep that story out because, hey, Abraham's a great man of God, but God puts it in there to show that he does use flawed people. And he doesn't hide that. So I say to you, don't stop striving for greater levels of maturity. Recognize that God still wants to use you no matter what black marks you have on your record. No matter what has been a part of your history. God uses flawed people all the time and He he is happy to do so. 
And then finally, no matter how bad our sin, God's mercy triumphs. No matter how bad our sin, God's mercy triumphs. Now please don't hear this as a statement. You know, God uses flaws people. God's mercy triumphs over our sins. Don't hear this as a statement to presume upon God's grace. We've spent a great deal of time talking about not taking God's blessings for granted. And that's really the point of the passage. Hear this as a statement of what a great God we serve. Don't wallow in misery over your past sins, past failures. Instead, recognizing that, recognize that God loves to use you because He loves to display His mercy. You know, God is working to glorify Himself in this world, primarily through the church. And the primary way in which He shows His glory is by showing mercy to people who are unworthy of it. People like you and me. That apart from Christ, we are unworthy of God's mercy, aren't we? And yet God is glorifying Himself by pouring out that mercy over and over again, even as we continue to stray from Him like Hosea's wife. Or, excuse me, Haggai. Yes, Hosea's wife. Um, So no no matter how bad our sin is, God's mercy triumphs. Friends, it's very easy for us to take the blessings of God for granted. As if, you know, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. God's blessing is always going to be with me. I'm always going to enjoy the spiritual blessings of God. But Samson learned uh, in a very hard way that turning away from God, ignoring his own sin, resulted in the removal of God's blessing and it caused him to turn back to God. And that was actually a good thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy that does triumph over judgment. Lord, we were under Your wrath and deserving of an eternal punishment in hell because of our sin. But Lord, You chose to reach down to us through the person of Jesus Christ and help us to understand our sin before You and our need to turn to You in repentance and faith. Lord, we don't know why You would have chosen people like us. We don't deserve anything that we have received. All that we have is part of Your grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. And really, even unwanted favor. We were enemies of You. We were enjoying our sin. And You saved us. And Lord, we as Christians, even... Many of us who have been Christians for a long time can take for granted Your blessings and just assume that they will always be there and how we live doesn't matter, but I'm thankful for stories like this that helps us to see that how we live does matter. And it's not a magical formula, but it is a response of a loving heart that that we serve You. And, and we don't just serve, but we we seek to love You with all of our heart. Help us to do that, we pray. Lord, may You enliven our spirits to obey Your Word, to trust You. The primary way that we show trust is by obeying Your Word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.